Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Greetings. Hey, Max. Who's on the show this week? On the show this week is Ian Koss. Ian is uh, a podcaster. He has a show that came out this fall. You guys might have heard about it. It's called The Big Dig. Heard of it. It is a nine-part, nine-part series on America's most expensive infrastructure project, The Big Dig, in Boston. Ian made the show for GBH in Boston. And it is uh, it is about as deep a dive as you can do on an infrastructure project. And I will say... I think it is a true feat. It is um, absolutely entertaining. And you would think perhaps that nine hours on an infrastructure project would not be, but Ian found a way to do that. And so we talked about how you make nine hours on an infrastructure project, totally entertaining. Spoiler alert, the answer is make it about people and report the living hell out of it. So we talked about that. And then uh, we talked a little bit about a show he did a couple of years ago too, which is very, very different. It is a uh, five-part series about his realization that everyone in his family who was at his wedding was divorced. And he goes back and talks to them about what happened in their marriages. So that's two shows, one of them uh, very, very personal and one of them uh, very, very, very public. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make this show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox, though I sometimes do miss doing my own ad reads, which is a passion of mine. I'm open if anyone else wants to bring me in as a ringer to read ads on your show. Thanks to Vox. And now here's Max with Ian Koss. Hey, Ian. Hey there. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It is such a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. It's um, one of those situations where it's like slightly eerie to um, hear your voice because I've spent so much time with your voice recently. I keep getting that, but the line I keep getting is, I'm so used to hearing you at 1.5 speed. You sound weirdly <laughs> slow, um, which I, I don't know whether to take as a compliment or not. Well, your speed sounds great to me. And I'm really, really excited to talk to you about uh, this latest project. I got some questions about some of your earlier work. I have some questions about how they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But to start, I think uh, it would be helpful for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with The Big Dig, and I understand this is a bit of an oxymoron, but can you give me the short version of the story of The Big Dig? 
The short version of a very long story, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So The Big Dig, if you're just vaguely familiar with it, it's probably because it was, at the time, the most expensive public works project in American history, period. It was a highway project in Boston, where I live, and the basic idea was to take this aging, dysfunctional, elevated highway that tore right through the center of the city, take it down, put the whole thing underground and restore the heart of the city. So it was this very ambitious, idealistic, kind of visionary in many ways project that ultimately came to be known more for its delays and cost overruns and problems. So it has a kind of complicated legacy as both a visionary project and a sort of cautionary tale of how difficult infrastructure projects can be. How long are we talking here? Like how many uh, how many years? So the full story arc of The Big Dig is almost 40 years from its very first conception, which is basically early 1970s, to when the tunnels are finally opened and the elevated highway is finally torn down in like the mid-2000s. So long time. But that is the life cycle of a public works project. These things are not done in, you know, years. They're done in generations. Generations is exactly right. I mean, and the show gets at that. There are full generations of people whose careers, whose lives were sort of defined by this project. Like there's whole new, it's like the new class. There's whole new generations of people who come in to try and shepherd it. And in some ways, it kind of burned everybody. Yeah. I mean, very few people came out unscathed by this, I would say. And it was interesting in reapproaching, you know, so many folks who had worked on it over the years. I I wasn't sure what kind of response I would get if people would be like, oh, God, the big dig. That's the last thing I want to talk about. But actually, again and again, the response I tended to get was people were eager to tell their story and to revisit that legacy because a lot of people did feel kind of burned or misunderstood by the way the story played out. It's so interesting you say that because I, I was struck by that listening to it. It occurred to me at some point that you might have found a real sweet spot for reporting mm-hmm. where people were still here, yeah, still remember it, still cogent, but it is far enough in the rear view that the stakes of it are lower. Yeah. Their willingness to talk to you is higher. Yep. And that they would be more honest, potentially, than they would have at any other point. I mean, in a way, like, I I kept being surprised that the next person would talk to you as candidly as they did. And I was just as surprised. Yeah, that's something that I didn't realize consciously going in it wasn't like let's see what is the ideal time frame in which to tell a historical narrative where people are alive but have some distance but in retrospect it was absolutely that um that these people are mostly not in office they're retired they maybe have an eye towards their own legacy in a way that they didn't when they were kind of in the fray of politics and i think the other piece of it that's important is that now in 2023 the fruits of the project are also visible in a way that they weren't in 2005, 2007, even 2010, 2015. 
Um, you know, it's now been, you know, almost 20 years since the project was completed. And so we can actually reckon with not only its flaws, not only its traumas, but also its results. Right. It's like a, at this point, everyone who was scarred by it in some way also wants to claim a little bit of its success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have some questions about how you approach a 40-year infrastructure story, yeah. just like from a reporting and structuring perspective. But since we started with the reporting, I got a couple more questions about how those conversations went. Please. One is, you know, when this project started, you were not yet born. So I was born in 1988. Um, so the construction really got underway in the early 1990s. So yeah, I was a very small child when construction began. Right. They broke ground and you were a toddler. Yeah. And one thing that I was wondering listening to it was like, how did you balance trying to figure out like who had access to grind? So much of the show is like interpersonal. Yeah. You know, you say a couple of times in the project, like this is the ultimate version of like all politics is local, but without having lived through it, how did you balance people's sort of like personal beefs with the larger story? Yeah, it that dawned on me fairly early in the process that there are different versions of the narrative and that if you just, you know, talk to one person and then all the people who they suggested you talk to and then all the people, you know, if you just sort of followed one chain of recommendations and reporting, you could very easily find yourself swept up in one person's narrative or, or one kind of camp's narrative of this project. So we definitely made an effort early on to kind of diversify our entry points, if that makes sense, you know, you know, to read the books that did exist on the subject, to find the obvious public officials who are very, you know, whose names are strongly associated with it, to talk with a number of reporters who had covered it at the time, and to sort of start building, you know, a spreadsheet, essentially, of names that we are interested in. And then, of course, like with any project like this, every person we talk to points us towards more people and more people. And we end up with this spreadsheet of probably, you know, between one and 200 names on it, of which we interviewed close to 100. And so I think through that process, we started to get a sense of the different narrative camps and I don't want to say that we nailed it or that we got everything perfect. I've gotten many criticisms since the show came out, like, oh, wow, you really got taken in by that person, or wow, you put a lot of weight on that person's statements. Like, I think you should check that farther, you know. And I've gotten that from both sides, so to speak, left and right, um, which is to be expected. You cannot tell the story of the big dig in Boston and make everyone happy. That's that's never going to happen. Did you have that clear in your head when you started or was it something you had to realize over time? It the it dawned on me as we went along. I mean, I th I knew it was controversial going in. That I, I knew people would have strong opinions about it. Um but as I got further in and I talked to more people and I could see the you know, where people's narratives aligned and where they really didn't align, that I was going to have to make some choices about, you know, whose voices and stories and perspectives we were, you know, treating, giving space to, um, and that inevitably not everyone would be happy with it. 
Um, and definitely in the run up to the release, I, I started to get increasingly anxious about, you know, what I was potentially opening myself up to just as the, the person who is the voice and name, you know, of the show, like a lot of that stuff is directed at me for better and for worse. Um, but I, I would say that overall, I've been amazed and gratified that the feedback coming at us is is overwhelmingly positive, like grateful for telling the story. And also, did you consider this or and also you might have looked more into this. So, there, it, But I think there's like an underlying sense that this story did need to be told and it serves a public good, especially here in the region where I live, to tell it, and I think nationally and internationally. It makes sense to me that, that people would respond to it at least acknowledging like, you guys made a nine-hour documentary right, right. <laughs> about this thing. Like, It certainly wasn't like a fly-by-night operation. On that topic of like nine hours and a hundred people and massive spreadsheets and everyone pointing you in these different directions and everyone having their own slightly different versions of community board meetings in the 70s or backroom deals in the 80s or whatever it might be. How did you and the folks that you were making the show with, how did you think about putting limits on yourselves or on the story you were going to tell? Like it felt to me like it was both like nine hours, that's a lot on the big dig, and also could have been 18, could have been 36. Like, yep, yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do you how do you find uh, a stopping point with a story this vast? Yeah, I mean, at some point we just had to stop. Like, we c- there were still names on the list. There were still people we could talk to. So at some point we almost arbitrarily we were like, okay, it's we're getting into the summer. The show's going to come out in September. We need to stop. We need to stop talking to people. We cannot incorporate more stories. But I think the way that I started to wrap my head around it as we got into production was kind of deciding that we were not going to tell the comprehensive chronological account of The Big Dig. If you know the story very well, there are huge characters and storylines that we do not touch at all. And the way I justified that to myself, at least, was basically deciding we're going to do these eight episodes because there's really eight kind of core narrative episodes that cover the course of the history. And each one of them is going to have cover both a period of time and have a, a thematic kind of angle. So, for example, in episode four, we're talking about the late 80s the end of the Dukakis era, and specifically we're talking about environmental permitting, right? And so for that time period, that was all we really looked at was like environmental permitting in the late 80s. We didn't really look at environmental permitting in the late 90s or in the 70s or in the early 2000s. And so kind of deciding along the way that like this time period, this theme gave us at least something of a a limiting frame. Right. You had to sort of like manufacture some constraints even in the way that you were going to try and tell the story. Exactly. Yeah. I have to tell you, even that example you're using, like episode four, that's about environmental permitting in the late 80s. Yep. Like, forgive me for this, that almost sounds like a joke of something that is boring. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like we're just, just environmental permitting in the, in the late 80s. Feels like it has the 
bones of like a dissertation yeah. that is read by the person who wrote it and, <laughs> and no one else <laughs> their advisor and no one else right yep yep but that's not the show man the show is engaging and entertaining how did you think about the audience and how to tell it as like a product for people to listen to how do you make environmental permitting restricted to the late 80s something that people are going to want to press play on i think one thing that i really carried with me in making this show is a belief that bureaucracy is interesting and that once you get through the jargon and wonky sounding stuff like environmental impact statement right like w once you just get used to that word as as just like a word that you're hearing now then beyond that it's all just human drama there's suspense and there's stakes and there's conflict and there are characters and like, like it does all the things that a good story does it just happens to be playing out around an environmental impact statement so i think I tried to hold that belief that like this stuff is interesting, you know, that like contracting is interesting. Slurry walls are interesting. Um, if you can just like bear with us for a little bit to get past the technical piece. And then I think, you know, structurally, the way we thought about it was that every single episode has some kind of do or die moment like does the project survive does it die on the table um, so that we had a, a really clear kind of narrative anchor that we were building up towards so then the bureaucratic wrangling and the wonky stuff just becomes gets sort of like drawn along in that narrative it does feel like um every episode is sort of building to that kind of do or die mm -hmm. moment but there's another way that you did it right which is the show starts essentially with the case for why this stuff is important and interesting which is the stakes of the of the current moment that we are living in right right and so at least as a listener that was my experience of it was that to understand how we're going to ever build anything again you kind of have to understand how messy and perilous building this last thing was right exactly yeah it's funny we in crafting the beginning of the show, we went back and forth and back and forth as to how to begin. Um, as you know, beginnings are hard. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you spend like half the time just on that first episode and then the rest kind of flows from that. And I thought about this actually as we went along in some of the other episodes too. There's a a tendency to always begin with sort of like a cold open, you know, this sort of like just drop you right into the story and like hear the human side of it. And with some of these episodes, I, I start, I kind of felt myself pulled between actually do I, and I wish we, the, the term that my co-producer and I came up with was the warm open, which is like, I don't know if you, maybe that's a term other people use, but like sometimes I kind of wanted the warm open. I kind of wanted just like, this is why this matters. This is why this relates to today. And now we're going to tell you a story about it. And the story begins like this. Rather than it was a dark, blustery day and so-and-so stepped out of the cab onto the curb. You know, um, and, and I think we deploy both over the course of the show. But it was something we thought a lot about. Like, what is the best way into this story? The warm open. I like that. The warm open. 
Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. One of the things that it was hard for me not to think about the whole time is just like, it's messy. Yeah. The whole story of the Big Dig is messy. No one is like exactly who you think they are, exactly who they think they are. People are switching sides. Yeah. Like their incentives are all misaligned. Like it's just fucking messy. And so much of the show, the sort of like broader themes are questions about like optimism and cynicism and can we do big things? And I wonder sort of like um, in the same way that you were evolving on what you thought the story was, was there any evolution for you on like human messiness at that scale? I definitely think that uh, as I got further along into it, it became clear that there were no heroes and villains in the story. And to the extent that I do have kind of a mission for the show, it is to kind of disrupt some of the calcified narratives that people hold around it. And I feel like so many of the existing narratives were on good guys and bad guys, right? That there are like, there were people who had the project's interest at heart and the public interest at heart. And then there were the people who messed it up and because they were greedy and they were corrupt. And I just, you know, I talked to a lot of those people and I am convinced that almost everybody out operating in some ways believe that they were doing the right thing. You know, there are definitely some bad actors in the mix, you know, some some straight up nefarious characters, no doubt. Um, but it does not take a corrupt, villainous politician or contractor to create a mess. Like a lot of people all working with their best interests in what they believe is the best course of action that can also create a mess. And, and that felt important to me to understand. And once you understand that, does that leave you feeling more optimistic 
less optimistic or just differently about these big questions that you're raising at the start of the series? Like once you spend however long you spent on this thing, once you talk to 100 people and you come away with the idea that like it's not simple, there are not heroes and villains, everyone is telling themselves a story that they're doing the right thing. Right. And yet this thing took 40 years and cost a shit ton of money and everyone came out scarred in some way. Like, where does that leave you feeling about big infrastructure projects, but kind of anything big? Yeah, and I really do take it as a lesson, not just about infrastructure. It's funny, I'm I'm giving a talk later tonight with at this like transportation advocacy thing in Boston. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is like how we commemorate the big dig, you know, because there are, there isn't really a monument or a museum or really even much left of that really shows you that this project ever happened at all. Um, we, we just kind of see the results of it and we forget about the hard work and the trauma and the expense. Um, and I think that's kind of a problem in a way because, you know, whenever we look forward to the next big thing, whether that's an infrastructure project or a book or a podcast or a home renovation or whatever it is, like it's so easy to forget how difficult the last big thing was. So I try to remind myself like, oh yeah, when I was starting out work on this, the last podcast, it felt impossible and it felt slow and it felt like it wasn't going anywhere. Um, and it's like our memory for that stuff is really short like we're really good at you know suppressing the difficult traumatic stuff there's probably some like evolutionary reason for that you know i'm sure i'm sure and so in the same way that you know right now i can just sort of like revel in the fruits of this podcast and boston can revel in the fruits of you know these tunnels and things i think like it's always important to try and like dredge up the history of that you know that difficult stuff yeah but i mean i think that's my question is like when you are focused on the dredging and the pain. Yeah. I guess, you know, either for, for you with projects or, you know, for America with projects, like where would you say you're at at the moment? I think there's certainly a lot of reasons to be cynical after studying the story of the Big Dig. There's so many reasons to think we could never even do that project today, let alone you know, the more ambitious projects that it'll take to, you know, mitigate or prevent the worst effects of climate change, as one example. But I uh, I actually do take a fair amount of kind of optimism in a strange way from the big dig, because it did ultimately happen. Given everything that went wrong, all the struggles, all the problems, the fact that it did actually happen, I find kind of inspiring. So I, I am certainly not without optimism. Yeah, I feel like there's an argument for um, sort of living in the place where optimism touches realism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not telling yourself a giant project is going to be easy, but also holding on to enough optimism that you're willing to do it. Right, right. And there is, I mean, something I thought a lot about in this story is like that there was almost a necessary delusion going into it that like if you know, if we had known all along just how expensive it was going to be, just how long it was going to take, it it never would have happened. Like politically, it wouldn't have happened. And so what does that say about us? Given that in hindsight, there are many, many smart people who I interviewed who told me that for what the city got, this project was a bargain. So how do we square that? It is such a paradox that 
if people had known what it would take when it started, it never could have happened. And now even those same people think it was a good deal. Right. You know, I, I met somebody recently who told me that when the project was just getting started, their dad lived in Boston and he was in his 70s. And he, his attitude was, my city's going to be torn up for the rest of my life and I'm never going to see the end of it. And he was right. He died like the year the tunnels opened. And so that's a, that's a hard thing to sell and to wrap your mind around as a public, that, uh, that this is a really a long-term investment and not all of us will see the benefits of it. But then on the other hand, there are people I've talked to who moved to Boston after this project was completed and never knew the city another way. Yeah, it's like, uh, look at that beautiful bridge. Exactly. Look at that beautiful bridge. Look at that beautiful greenway. Look at that tunnel. And I would even guess that there are a lot of people who don't realize those things are the big dig. Totally. There was something you were just saying about selling and wrapping your head around, which that duality, right? Selling and being able to actually realize what we're talking about feels to me a little bit, and spoiler alert here, where you landed with the show, Mm -hmm. which is that the lesson, the takeaway from it, there's this whole montage of you asking people what's the big lesson of it, but your conclusion is essentially that while all of that stuff was incredibly messy, the thing that wasn't there was a story. Mm -hmm. That there was a failure to tell a story about what was happening, which is both a sales job and a way of getting people to wrap their heads around it. Yeah, and I mean, I think about that as just as a young person growing up during the project, as it was going on, I I never heard the story of why, why this project was being done in the first place, what the purpose of it was. The only story I heard was how expensive it was and how slow it was and how messed up it was. Um, And I, I mean, I interviewed some people who did PR for the big dig and like they knew this, you know, it's not like, you know, they were trying. (laughs) Um, And it's also not to say that the only problem was a PR strategy. You know, like there were physical material things that were going wrong with this project um, that made it difficult to sell. But I think if we zoom way out, part of what, what the big dig really captures for me is what happens when, when a narrative kind of spins so far out of control and it becomes its own kind of vicious cycle that uh, as the perception of the project became so negative, it became increasingly difficult for the project to even function. Um, and that that sort of bond of understanding between the public and the politicians and the people executing it was just so, so shattered. Is there any crossover between that idea and the kind of journalism that you're doing? Like, are there lessons to be learned journalistically from that idea? I think so. Um, And I don't, you know, everything I'm saying, I'm not trying to criticize the journalists at the time who covered it um, because they had a very difficult job to do of trying to make sense of this project when it's like right up in front of their faces and they can't see the long arc. But, you know, as one example, I interviewed a Globe reporter, and this is not in the podcast, um, but he told me this is part of the interview, a Globe reporter who was on the story 
towards the end of the project, when the tunnels were finally opening. And as they were getting ready for the grand opening, he recalls the word coming down from the editor at the Boston Globe, basically, go out and find something that's wrong with this thing and don't come back until you do. Like that was the mindset at that point. Um, and I, again, that speaks to how just like the, the relationship, you know, between the media and the government and the public, like it was all so, so messed up around this project that no one was willing to give it the win. You know, even at that moment where that should have been, you know, a triumph for this project, a look what we did kind of moment, um, we weren't ready to give them that win. And so the, the journalist I talked to dutifully went out and he found, you know, stories about how the, the ribbon cutting ceremony was going to cost X money and where it was coming from and how it was too expensive. He found a story about how the grade of the road leading down into the tunnel was really steep and in certain weather conditions it might freeze over and cars would spin it like and you can find like in the month leading up to the tunnel opening, you can find all these stories about the problems. And then when I talked to this reporter, he was like, yeah, and most of those problems were not really problems in the end. So I see my project as a chance to kind of step back with some distance and hopefully see where the journalistic narratives of the time were both, you know, being the watchdog, because that is the job of journalism, right? is to, you know, it's to be the eyes and ears and to apply scrutiny. But I also think there were moments where the media was feeding into a kind of cycle of negativity around the project that was not always constructive. And I think it's worth looking at both of those. I understand that this might be like a sort of sacrilegious question, but like you are now an infrastructure expert in Subway. Is there any part of you that feels like you should... Uh go figure out how to make shit? Uh, I mean, I have tremendous imposter syndrome. It's, yeah, it, it's been both, it's very gratifying that people who are in this field are excited about the show and are taking stuff from it. We did an event at Boston City Hall with transportation planners there. My co-producer, Isabel Hibbert, and I are doing an event at the Mass DOT, Department of Transportation, next week. Playing all the big venues, man. I've been invited to be a speaker at the International Bridge, Tunnel, and Turnpike Authority Association annual conference. That's the Super Bowl. That's the infrastructure Super Bowl right there. L listen, I hear the, the bridge and tunnel conferences are wild. Uh, no, I have no idea. But it, so it's been a mixture of fascinating, exciting, and bemusing that people who actually do this shit for a living want to talk to me about it. And I try and just be excited and offer what I know because I feel like I have no clue. I want to change gears quickly um, because there's another project and you have made many different shows. You are also a musician. There's lots of things that we could talk about, but there's one project that I wanted to make sure um, we spent some time with before you go, which is pretty different than The Big Dig. It's called Forever is a Long Time mm -hmm. and it is five episodes and each one is the story of a different divorce in your family. Yes. As broad and like sweeping as The Big Dig is, Forever is a Long Time is about as personal a show as it gets. Mm -hmm. You and your wife come in and come out of every episode as you're talking to people in your family. 
talking about your own marriage and your decision to get married. And I wonder listening to it, well, I think I understood why you wanted to take it on, Mm -hmm. but I was interested in what made you want to share with the world. Yeah. For me, I mean, the projects are very unrelated in many ways, but I think what you mentioned about the, the sort of process of them is, to me, they're very complimentary in that after doing a show like that, it felt so liberating to do a show like The Big Dig. We're like, oh, I don't have to talk about myself uh, and I can just talk about environmental impact statements. And I also, for the record, I'd much rather be the infrastructure guy than the divorce guy. So <laughs> uh, as far as like my personal brand is concerned, I'm with the, the bridge and tunnel conventions. That's great. Um, so why did I want to share it with the world? Um, I don't know. I'm a, I, like you, like most people who feel compelled to kind of make and document the world. I, I, that is something I feel compelled to do. I could have just had those conversations for my own personal edification, but it did feel meaningful in a way to put them, put them out in the world. I'm somebody who comes from a, in some ways, a, a family of storytellers and documentarians not necessarily people who did it at a high level or even professionally, but it's something I see as a strain in my lineage uh, and the, the things I grew up with is like sharing your story, telling your story. Um, so I don't know. It, it it was in some ways a difficult decision, you know, because it involved other people and involved very personal aspects of people's lives, but in other ways a very easy decision of like I feel like there's a a meaningful sort of constellation of narratives around marriage and commitment in my family and why wouldn't I share that with the world you did it independently right I produced it independently um it was a just like a side project nobody made any money from it um I should say that PRX, who has been sort of like my long-term partner on many projects, they distributed the show and were instrumental in helping it get featured in a few places. But fundamentally, it was a, a totally independent production. I had never done something really that I had hosted myself. Um, and so I just, I had really no expectations for that necessarily anyone would listen to it. Uh, and I just decided to put it out there. And it it continues to amaze me that a bunch of people did listen and appreciate it. But in some ways, it is a blessing to make something like that. And I realized this when I then came to do the big dig, like by the time it was coming together, there was the pressure of, oh, wow, somebody put a lot of money into this. Mm-hmm. There are expectations around this. And that's, you know, obviously that's a privilege to be, you know, it's a privilege to get paid to do what we love and to have, you know, institutional support for that. But it does carry a different kind of pressure and forever is a long time did not carry that burden at all. It was just something I did. Do you think it had any impact on the way that you made those two shows? Like, are there choices either around tone or ideas or the way you told it that you think were were impacted by that? So I'll note it's actually it's the same editor on both shows too, Lacey Roberts, who's a, a dear friend and collaborator on many projects. So there is a, a very like strong through line 
from Forever's a Long Time to The Big Dig, as different as they are. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Big Dig was a very different kind of operation. I mean, we had to fact check stuff. I mean, I wasn't fact checking my grandmother <laughs> about, you know, her stories about my grandfather. Like that's and even like the, uh, you know, I didn't think of Forever's a Long Time as journalism, per se, um, whereas The Big Dig clearly was. So they're just very different mindsets. Um, but I mean, aesthetically, I felt like I had a lot of freedom in both projects. You know, I never, it wasn't like when we came to do the big dig, it was like, okay, now we have a, a big public radio station behind it. We have to like really be buttoned up and, you know, can't have any fun with it. Um, one thing that I, looking back now, I do find sort of liberating about the totally independent passion project approach is that that show is five episodes that are each about 30 minutes long which is a very un it's a kind of uncommon format and length for a limited series in podcast land you probably know this far better than i but there are like kind of commercial financial reasons to like why limited series tend to be more like six seven eight episodes long which is frustrating as a creator that there are like these formula buckets that every project gets squished into like, Oh, it can be an hour long thing that you put on somebody else's podcast, or it can be like an six or eight hour long thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and forever is a long time is like, if you add it up, it's like the length of a longish movie, you know? And that was a really nice flexibility to have because there were no, no financial constraints around it at all. That, that felt very liberating. It's a dynamic I think you see in documentary film too a lot, which is like um, it can be challenging to make things their sort of natural length. Right. Either it's like a feature length or it's a docu-series, but nothing in between. One thing I will say for The Big Dig, though, is that I feel like I listen to a lot of limited series podcasts that feel like, oh, they kind of stretch this out. Like this wanted to be a four-episode series but like they made it into a six or eight episode series the big dig there was a lot of story there it we did not stretch anything um in order to fill those nine episodes well i have a theory about that i agree uh and i have a theory about it which is that when you see a nine episode podcast about the big dig mm -hmm. what you imagine is process yeah. Like, how can that not be just an incredibly deep dive on process? And what I think you did with the show, which was surprising, is that from the jump, it is about feelings and human messiness and ambiguity. And like you were saying, the process is sort of a, a backdrop for that, but it's not the lead. Mm -hmm. And listening to Big Dig and then I went back and listened to Forever is a Long Time it it felt to me like Forever is a Long Time actually had like the inverse surprise which is that you imagine that a show with five 30 minute episodes where someone's talking to various family members who have gotten divorced would be all about feelings mm -hmm. and human messiness and ambiguity but it felt to me like it was kind of about process. Like it felt to me like it was kind of about what actually happened. How did things actually go sideways? Right. Much less than 
how people feel about the fact that it did. Interesting. Yeah, that that balance is certainly something I've thought about in many things I've made of like how much of it is just sort of like unspooling the blow by blow like events that happened and how much of it is spent, you know, processing. And that was, I think, a place where on the big dig, Lacey, our editor, really helped like rein in the procedural quality of it. There were certainly drafts that were much more like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And so like in that project, I needed that. Um, and I know when I was doing Forever is a long time, Lacey was also the one pushing me to like, talk about how you feel, <laughs> you know, like that that's why we're listening to this thing. It's not just to find out, you know, like how your grandfather went and like got a divorce in Mexico City. Um, we want to know how you feel about it. So I think maybe in there there's a I'm someone who who is drawn towards the procedural in some ways and uh, you know has to be reminded to uh to attend to the emotional side of it. But the big dig is it it is a surprisingly emotional story. Um, I, I didn't realize that when I started, but but like when you talk to the people about it, like the people really who worked on it, who were affected by it, it, it is it has a really in, intense emotional quality to it that I, I tried to really bring out in every episode. Did it leave you with some kind of emotional experience? Like how do you feel having done it? It's funny, you know, I, I've been out doing a lot of interviews, you know, since the show came out, you know, and trying to sort of distill the project. And, and there's this funny thing that happens when you like make a thing and then you talk about it a bunch. It's like your own, like through that like recursive process, like your own narrative of the thing you made and how you feel about it kind of starts to like distill and morph over time. But one of the things I do, like just in observing myself, I do feel a kind of like, defensiveness of the big dig almost at this point i do feel a weird emotional attachment to it and i I, fi I find myself like constantly making disclaimers like i know it wasn't all perfect i know there are lots of problems we spend a lot of time in them with the show but like i don't know i just for some reason you know because the narratives around it are so negative and because for i think for many people in this country the big dig is just like a punchline you know, it's just like shorthand for boondoggle, disaster, fuck up, fiasco. I did like come out of it with this funny kind of like knee jerk feeling of pro protectiveness almost of the big dig. Like I spent so much time with that story and the people involved and it, it just left me wanting for it to be seen with like complexity and compassion which I don't think it always was, which is a weird thing to say about like an, a giant amorphous <laughs> infrastructure, infrastructure. Like there's nothing, per it's not even like a bridge that you can walk up and put your hand on and feel like, wow, people, may it's, it's the most like convoluted network of, you know, interconnected projects that form this thing called the big dig. There's nothing, nothing human scale about this. And yet I came away with this this weird kind of attachment to it. You have a soft spot for it. I do. I have, I have a weird soft spot for the big dig now. Well, I got to tell you, I kind of feel like having a soft spot 
for an amorphous infrastructure project is the way that you both don't forget how brutal it was Mm -hmm. and have the energy to do it again. Right. Right. That's my hope. Ian, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thanks so much to Ian Koss. His latest podcast is The Big Dig. You should listen to it. We'll see you next week. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.